God is the second part of the commandment. Um, and the, we looked at what it is generally, how it culminates in the person of Jesus was our second sermon two weeks ago. Um, this morning, um, we're looking at the fact that God has not only said this is the commandment, um, but that he has warned his people um, and, and all of humanity, if you take God's name in vain, um, you should expect God's um, punishment. And so one of the things in the world is large, and even you know, my heart, and I, I think I can speak on behalf of, of the elders, of Christ's covenant, as we, as we think about um, you, and by the way, we, we pray a lot for you, we, we talk about you a lot for our congregation, the work of elders, you don't see very much, um, we meet twice a month, um, we, we try to keep that meeting to an hour, it often spills over more than an hour as we pray for you and consider the different families in our congregation, um, the elders, Hallie and I see the elders as our community group, and so we gather for a meal once a month and function as a community group of elders, and we have other meetings where we're discipling or helping families going through hard stuff, and so we're, we're actively thinking about you as a congregation and, and ourselves as a part of you, and one of our, our, our biggest concerns is we together strive for holiness in a congregation and want to see people who don't know Jesus reach with the gospel, and see people who've come, who are professing believers, grow in their faith, um, one of the biggest things we long for is just a seriousness about God and who God is. A sobriety of the realness of God and his holiness. We long for our congregation to get a view of that in the scriptures. C.S. Lewis talks about that, and he says, we, we get heaven all wrong. We think about heaven and views of heaven and we think of it cloud-like, that heaven is more ethereal and kind of more soft. And so if you think about our, our views of heaven as like being on a cloud and there's mist and kind of gushiness and you know, walking on clouds and, and whatever, whatever, whatever versions we have from you know, whatever art you've seen or, or whatever else. And, and Lewis is saying, no, 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 it's, it's the complete opposite. Like the new heavens and the new earth is more substantial. It is more real than the things that we're sitting in right now. If you say, no, there's nothing more real or hard than you know, a concrete slab that's a, a stage or cinder blocks or the floor under our feet. Like that's real, substantial. You think that this is cloud-like and misty in comparison to who God is and in comparison to the new heavens and earth. This is, this is soft and unclear and cloudy. And so we have to hope for is the trueness of the character of God in all of his holiness and who he is. And the key to Christian living and what God is up to in our lives is convincing us about just how real he is, just how substantial he is, and just how true he is. And I know that we're a people who love stories. Um, you know, our, our family's a reading family. We love reading a bunch of books. I love things like The Lord of the Rings. Um, I grew up before I was a Christian being like complete Star Wars geek. Like, I love all of those fictional stories when you read them. We have to remember as a story-loving people um, that this is not fiction. You know, no, no part of this um, is fiction. You know, this isn't some metaphorical interpretation for the generality that we might apply the name to God. This is the revelation of a true God who is saying, this is who I am substantially and truly a God who is actively ruling and reigning in the universe, and a God who actively administers his mercy and his justice. 
And so as we come to this commandment, we can't breeze past the part where God says, hey, listen, don't take my name in vain, and anyone who does take my name in vain, I will surely punish. We can't leave that punishment part out like, I'm sure in general, he's kind of not so serious about that. He is deadly serious about that because our God is serious and true and substantial in who he has revealed himself to be. And so what I hope to do this morning is to show you some places in scripture some, some brief narratives, again, historical, true, really happened, real people, where God applied either mercy or judgment to those who took his name in vain. So we're going to find a bunch of blasphemers this morning um, in different parts of the Bible, and you're going to see either God's mercy or God's judgment um, being meted out in real time. And so the hope is that we, right now, and I'll ask for it before I read this passage, um, is that God would continue to impress upon us the substantialness of who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. Um, and, and that that would drive us into wholehearted, full-throated worship of our Lord God. And so, um, with that brief introduction, here's Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Um, because this is the word of our God, let's pray before we consider it. Father, we thank you for your word, which is true in every part, every single word, every single dot of the I and cross of the T is your inerrant and holy word, describing not a nice story, some kind of fictional narrative that we're supposed to somehow broadly draw truths from, but revealing you who you are and how you have worked in history and how you are working right now at 11.13 a.m. on October 28th in 2018. So help us, Father, your people, as we study your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, I, it's really, I've, I, I probably could have come up with 30, 40, 50 different narratives as we work our way through the Bible. I um, end up choosing just six um, and I'm going to read these. We'll take a look at how God's name is taken in vain and his name being a summary of his character and what God did. If you want to turn in your version of God's word um, and your copy of God's word, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 um, through 19 um, is where I'll be. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Um, this is the narrative of Naaman. Um, we currently find um, this is after in the history of the kings, after David has died, after Solomon has died, the kingdom has been split. Um, the Syrians um, are a foreign country, and they have been leading raids on Israel. Um, they would go to the boundary and take different portions of Israel captive. Um, Israel is in a place of decline as a nation because they have rejected God. Um, you're going to find Naaman, who is a Syrian captain, so he is a foreigner who has actively been persecuting God's people, going in and leading raids against. Um, you're going to find that he, in one of his raids, he took captive a Hebrew girl um, and forced her to be a servant in his household. And um, you're going to hear what happens um, in this. Now, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. I'll stop right there. That's important. God has purposed at this point, and the prophets are clear about this, that God is using pagan foreigners in order to discipline his people. And so God's told his people, listen, you've rejected me long enough. Discipline is coming. And what I'm going to do, which is going to surprise you, 
I'm actually going to allow you to fall into the hands of pagan kings and commanders. I'm going to allow them to beat you in battle to show you that you are walking away from me. So you see here that it was God who was allowing Naaman, a pagan army commander, to accomplish um, the, the raids against his own people. So even at that point, you see God's hand in the life of Naaman, a pagan who did not confess God um, at all. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper, uh, broad skin disease. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Even here we see the, the missional work of an exile. We see this little girl having compassion on the commander that had stolen her into slavery and wanting this commander to know her God because she believed that her God could save him. And so she mentions this to Naaman's wife. Um, and Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. And so here, even the king of Israel doesn't believe that his God can heal Naaman. And so he thinks he's found himself in a rough spot. Naaman's coming from a mightier, he's a mightier king, from a mightier king, mighty commander. He's saying, all right, I heard you can heal me. King of Israel's not going to be able to do it. And he's afraid Naaman's going to now bring more armies because he wasn't able to, to heal him. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha, Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. You've already sung about the Jordan this morning. And your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Par Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. And there you see not only Naaman generally being a pagan and taking the name of the Lord in vain, but here he's had a prophet say, this is what you should do in Jordan. And he makes these comparisons basically saying, what in the world? I expected at least the prophet to come out to me. Like he didn't even come out to me. I expected him to, to do some kind of like magic hocus pocus and wave his hands over me. He said that I should go wash in the Jordan River. The Jordan? Like... Why do I want to go in Mountain Run River? Certainly he'd say, like, go to the Nile or go to the great Mississippi River or some great... I've got better rivers than the Jordan River back in the country that I've came for. How disrespected. What, 
what little amount of effort in order to heal my leprosy? How in the world would a God like that, with methods like these, actually heal me? You guys are way furious and in a rage. Again, as a wise man, he surrounded himself by, by wise people. And so, picking up verse 13, And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of a man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And he turned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. They said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him in a short distance. So here we have a blasphemer. We have someone who actively says, God, this God is nothing. His ways are nothing. Why in the world did he even come? It would have made sense at that moment for God to strike him dead and to be just in doing so. To say, okay, do you want to see my power? Do you think that I'm not great? Watch this. And he's a smudge on the ground. Instead, God has mercy on him. And not only changes his skin and heals him from his disease but changes his heart, too. Doesn't even go away and say, this is cool, I've got, you know, baby skin. You know, I, I, I am a Jergens commercial. I actually do, as, you know, an adult army commander, you can imagine what the skin would be like of an army commander, tough and leathery, full of scars and whatever a commander has, much less covered in leprosy, and now his skin is like a child, but he wants to worship the Lord God. He says, now I know that the Lord God is the only God. So much so, he knows he has to go back to his own land, and there's going to be some pagan worship, and so the thought is he's going to bring, like, soil from Israel, and maybe he can at least stand in the sand that he's brought from Israel and worship the one true God. What, what mercy that God gave to this foreign commander blasphemer. Have you ever heard about a God like this? Ever. Who does this? Taking his name in vain and having mercy and changing his heart. Second passage, Daniel 4, 19 um, through 37. Um, what has happened is that the, um, in the course of the, the fall of Israel and Judah, things have gotten much worse. In 722 BC, Assyria um, took Israel into captivity. In 586, the Babylonians took the southern tribes captive. Um, and the person that God used to bring the southern tribes into captivity um, was Nebuchadnezzar, um, the king of Babylon. If you want to see something interesting, just go to your concordance, computer program, whatever, look up Nebuchadnezzar. It's kind of hard to spell. Two Zs there at the end, if you spell Nebuchadnezzar, and just look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Um, he's in Jeremiah, he's in the Kings, he's now in Daniel, he's like in Ezekiel, he's like all over the place in the Old Testament. And that's a really cool story. And so again, we have God using a, not, just, not just a pagan military general, but a pagan king um, to bring his people into exile. And the course of exile, Nebuchadnezzar brings some of the most promising young Hebrew men into his court, one of whom is Daniel. Um, Daniel is gifted, like Joseph was, in being able to interpret dreams. And Daniel is called in to interpret Nebuchadnezzar, the king's dreams. And we pick up one of those dreams here in Daniel 4, um, starting verse 19. Then Daniel, whose now name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. He's already heard the dream that he's supposed to interpret. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw grew and became strong, whose height reached out to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable, acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace in Babylon. The, sping, the king spoke, saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That the very, uh, very hour, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like the eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted, resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, and all of, all of whose works are truth, and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. So we're of our gods, similar story. Here we have Daniel coming in, and Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And in the dream, um, Daniel says, listen, doesn't look good for you. Um, you're for seven years. You're basically going to go nuts and lose your kingdom. And, and Daniel warns him and says, hey, listen, probably would be good at this point to repent. Because the God that I know is pretty serious about his word. Um, so it is for us a lot of the time. And so it is that we counsel and rebuke one another. We see patterns of sin. I mean, you can think you're going to be the exception. You can say, no, I, I think I can get away with this, and this can continue in my life. You know what? You're just not. Better to repent than to suffer the discipline of God. But if we don't repent, God's faithful to discipline us. And sure enough, in time it came. Nebuchadnezzar is out. He blasphemes the Lord God. He's got Daniel. Daniel's warned him. He's, he's called him to rebuke. He's rebuked him, called him to repent. Nebuchadnezzar looks out over all the kingdom, which he knows full well he has because of the God of Israel. He said, look at this great place that I've built. Look at this great kingdom. And immediately, he's driven mad. Driven out into the fields. It's, you know, he's sleeping out there. The, the dew is on him in the morning. Like, whatever's gone wonky in his head, like, he eats grass like an oxen. Like, that's what's sustaining him. Like, you, that, that's pretty bad. Like even, in, like, even if you're just, like, one of the survivalists who's out in the woods, you can't find food. Like, in your full right mind, if you have to eat grass, like, that's not a good situation. He has to eat grass, doesn't cut his hair or his fingernails. So this great king is now a madman for seven years, covered in dew, long hair, long fingernails, eating grass. And finally, God in his mercy brings him to repentance. And he cries out and says, now I extol and I praise the one true God. He, he, now, he now goes from blasphemer to God praiser. He goes from taking God's name in vain to extolling God's name. What mercy that God has given to this king. It, it, it would be acceptable and expected that God would judge him and simply leave him for the rest of his days out in the field with long nails, hair, eating grass until the end of his days for being so prideful as to think that everything he had was because of him. But God in his mercy came to a blasphemer and had grace on him and changed his heart. Again, it wasn't just that he cut his hair and had trim fingernails and got his kingdom back. He's now a worshiper of the one true God. That's wonderful mercy. It's beautiful mercy that our God provides. Third story we look at um, is from Luke 22. I'm probably familiar with this. We talked about this when I was had the privilege of preaching through the gospel of um, Luke. And this is about Peter's um, denial. This is Luke 22, verse 31. In the Lord's, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Pick up in verse 54. Having arrested Jesus, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance, 
Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But Peter denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. After a little while, another saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was also with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord, returned, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Again, here we see, we, we know the outcome of Peter and Peter's life, but we see this crucial turning point where the test for Peter, and Peter needed to go through this, this would mark the rest of his ministry. Peter would be radically unequipped to minister to the church of God after the resurrection of Jesus if he had not had his pride utterly knocked out from under him, if he had not been humbled in this way. So much so that Jesus, again, like Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, said, listen, you're going to deny me. And even says, after you deny me, you're going to repent. Like, Jesus has got it all taken care of. Not only are you going to deny me, but after you come to your senses, you're going to repent. I've prayed for you, so you're good, but all this is going to happen. And Peter's, you know, Jesus, you are crazy. Like, I'm, I'm not going to deny you. How, how could I deny you? I mean, who knew more of Jesus' earthly ministry than Peter? Who had received more grace um, than Peter? If anyone was the bold one who would go into, you know, the lion's den for the sake of Jesus, who would it be but Peter? And here we see exactly, can we not? Jesus, Peter becomes a blasphemer. Like, okay, you, you have to be acquainted with this guy, Jesus. I don't even know him. This is the same Peter a few chapters before who said, you are the Christ profess Jesus to be the Messiah of God and now have no clue who that guy is. And God, in his great mercy, towards Peter, a blasphemer, leads him to repentance. And you know the rest of the story after Jesus' resurrection, makes breakfast um, for Peter. Peter jumps into the water, swims ashore, they have breakfast, you know, you know feed my sheep and do you love me? And they go through the whole thing and Peter's restored um, to ministry. But here we see significantly in the life of Peter, God was right. You can't take God's name in vain without there being consequences. And these were deep consequences for Peter. And Peter found mercy with God as a blasphemer on who God has had mercy. So there's the, the third. Um, fourth, if we flip forward to Acts 5, um, 1 through 11, also a chapter we had the privilege of studying when um, I got to teach through the book of Acts. Um, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, but a certain ma man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. And his wife, also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. By the way, if you're ever wondering a good passage that talks about the full deity of the Holy Spirit, um, it's this one. So the end of verse 3, it says, Why have you filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And at the end of verse 4, You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And so here you see Luke using 
Holy Spirit God synonymously, where we see the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, having full deity. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Again, now we see Ananias and Sapphira. And it wasn't that they had, they had somehow not given all of their money. It's that they had lied about it was their big offense. It wasn't that they lied generally. We'll get to the commandment about lying a little bit later. But the lie to God was an offense against specifically the Holy Spirit. And so in walking contrary to God's ways and lying, they had actually offended God and offended here specifically the Holy Spirit and God in his just judgment killed Ananias then also killed Sapphira and judgment fell on Ananias and Sapphira. And the interesting thing after that, it says great fear fell upon the people of God. And that's God's intention with the third commandment. What happened here? You can imagine everybody's like, yeah, Christianity's awesome. You know, Pentecost, these guys were speaking all these languages. They love the poor. They love each other and care for each other. This Christianity thing seems like this really cool thing I might want to try out. I mean, I can kind of do that. I can do the pagan stuff. I'd like to add that to my great religiosity. And all of a sudden, you hear the story about Ananias and Sapphira, and it's like, whoa, hold up. This is a really serious God. This is a really serious commitment. If I'm going to follow this God... I'm going to follow him in holiness, and I'm going to follow him pleading his mercy, and I'm not going to think that I can kind of hoodwink this God. I can do whatever I want in my private life, lie in the church, and that this God doesn't see it. This is, this is an amazing evangelistic tool because it, it increases the sobriety and seriousness of who God is. He's not a God to be trifled with. You know, our witness to the watching world is not, sure, come on, he's all nice and bubbles and... And, and, and pink lights and, and wonderful stuff. He, he is a serious God. He is merciful and he is loving and he is gracious and he is just. He is sober. It's what um, C.S. Lewis was getting at as he described Aslan at some point. And, you know, one of the girls is looking at the lion and, and asking the lion, you know, are you safe? He's not a safe God. He's not a safe God. He's good. He's not safe at all. And you see that here in Ananias and Sapphira. And, it's, it's, it, and it was a testimony of what happens when people take God's name in vain and think that that's not a big deal. They were judged in this light. You know, where were Ananias and Sapphira? You know, were they legitimately converted and had fallen into sin? And God just decided, okay, you're coming home now, so you can't cause any more trouble. Um, or were they not legitimately converted? We don't know. But we do know that they took the name of God in vain and received God's judgment for it. We flip forward um, a little bit from there. We go to Acts 12, verses 20 through 24. 
Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on the throne and gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God, give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. We have this ruler here in and around the area of Judea. Some people wanted um, you know, blessings from him, so they come in. What, what can we do to flatter this guy? I know what we're going to do. We're going to call him God. Um, now, when you see the apostles, that having the apostles, the apostles are like, whoa, 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 not a God. Not at all. I can point you to the one true God. Don't worship me at all. Instead, Herod receives the worship due to God alone. And in that blasphemy, taking the name of God in vain, Herod is simply taken out by God. God just says, enough, done, taken out. And what it says is that a a chord from this is that the word of God grew and multiplied. Again, when we see God with seriousness and we take him seriously and we proclaim the gospel of a serious God who is both merciful and just, the gospel of God grows and multiplies. The last one out of the many that it's going to talk about is, um, I'll actually read it in just a second. When um, we come to the table, I'll read a portion of it. It's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 34, which we also looked at when I had the privilege of preaching through um, the first letter to the church of Corinth. This is Paul speaking to the church of Corinth. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. This is died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So as we looked at, we see here the same thing happening in Corinth. They didn't think it was a big deal to get drunk at the Lord's Supper. They didn't think it was a big deal for the rich to show up first and eat the bulk of the food and not much be left when the poor got off work um, and came and showed up for the Lord's Supper um, celebration. And that was blasphemy against God. They, they took the revelation of God, exemplified in the sacrament of God, the Lord's Supper, which spoke of the redemptive work of Jesus, and they treated it as if it was a light thing and sinned in the way they went about it and God brought judgment and here discipline on their congregation. And so they were having funerals in their congregation because they were profaning the name of God in the way that they obey, in the way that they observe the Lord's Supper. This is a super serious meal because it, it illustrates a super serious God who has given this to us as a command to be observed for his glory. And so here we see again God's disciplining judgment even upon his church and saying take me seriously so where this leaves us again as we looked at and concluded last week all of us fall into the blasphemer boat we are a part of fallen humanity all of us and the way that we live our lives blaspheme the lord god 
do not live our lives to his glory as we should, as he's commanded. And what God has given us to do is to cry out to him, the one true God, for mercy and to know and trust his promise that all who call out to him in mercy for his grace will receive mercy. For the Lord Jesus Christ is the one on whom the perfect name of God was placed, as we saw in Philippians. And the Lord Jesus Christ lived life as the perfect naming person of God. He, he perfectly proclaimed God's name. If you look at the end of the high priestly prayer in John 17, where Jesus is summarizing the whole of his ministry, what does he say? He's praying to his father. I have revealed your name to them. So when Jesus summarizes the whole of what he's done in his earthly ministry, it was revealing the name of God to them as he perfectly worshiped God and gave glory to God's name as the perfect man and as perfect God, second person of the Trinity. And not only that, that Jesus died the death of a blasphemer in the place of blasphemers. So he was killed for blaspheming the name of God, or so it was supposed, what he was accused of. And in doing so, died in our place who find ourselves in the place of blasphemers. And so when you look at your life and say, hey, listen, I, you know, I, I haven't used God's name in a cuss word recently. I think I'm good. And instead read this and say, whoa, my, I read the stories of all these people and my life is not glorify God at all. And what I say and what I think and what I do. And you cry out to God for mercy and wonder, can there be mercy for me? Is there mercy and grace at God's judgment seat? Could, could God declare giving me mercy to be perfectly just? And we see there at his right hand, the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the just and the justifier of those whose faith is in him. And so we, as blasphemers, find our story woven throughout the scriptures. And by the way, I picked the ones where the, the guys in the Old Testament received more mercy. It's a, it wasn't that, you know, God of the Old Testament, God of judgment. You know, you look at Nebuchadnezzar and Naaman and like, wow. You know, I, I, think, I think if I cry out to mercy, like, I'm, you know, all of my sins, all that I've done, I find myself in Naaman and Nebuchadnezzar's boat. And they receive mercy from God as blasphemers. Well, then there must be mercy for me too. If guys like that God has, um, has love for and saves and changes their heart, he can save my heart. So where that leaves us is to cry out to God for mercy and repentance as blasphemers, as people who do not take God's name as we should, but at times use his name in vain and to, to strive for a sober, real love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is bodily raised. He is at the right hand of his Father. He is our King and our Lord. He isn't a nice thought or a nice story. He is the one to whom we owe fealty and obedience. And if we decide to live our lives in sin, he will discipline us. If we decide to pretend and fake and that we can cordon off areas of our lives and keep sin over here, he will lovingly discipline us. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you are currently under the wrath and curse of God and have only hell to look forward to if you don't cry out in mercy to God. And if you do cry out in mercy to God, you have his forgiveness promised to you. 
But there is no one other than a blasphemer. There, there's no non-blasphemer in the book of the Bible other than Jesus. They're either blasphemers that receive judgment or blasphemers that receive mercy. And we are a people who have received abundant mercy, which drives us to long for holiness in our lives and to fear God alone. In a very real way, you should fear God. All people should fear God. If I could get every person to fear God, that is, that is the, it is the perfect thing if you're not a Christian, fear God. You're going to face him one day. He has just judgment reserved for you. The only way out is to plead mercy of Jesus. None of your works can do it. No one else can save. Plead Jesus. And if you plead Jesus, you know that you have forgiveness of sins. And then you can fear him as father. Not fear him as judge, but fear him as a loving father who is so for you that you want to serve him in everything you've done. And if you fear God alone, you don't have to fear anything else. What else do you have to fear if you know that you've made May right with God? You can have a a son's love for him, a daughter's love for him. We can walk in seriousness, seriousness and sobriety as a congregation. And so would we pray as a congregation that we would read this book and that we would see the storyline of grace, the storyline of the gospel, not in a way to be like, oh, I'm sure everything will be fine in the end, but in a way that, that commends and tells the story of a God who is more real than the concrete under your feet. A God who sees every single part of your life, every single part of your story, calls you to a holiness you cannot attain without pleading his grace and his mercy and walking by faith in his son. This is the faith that we have, utterly unique in the world, because we have an utterly unique God who alone is to be honored and glorified. So why don't we give him the glory in prayer now as we come to his table, Father. And we call you Father. We are people who find ourselves often taking your name in vain, much to our sorrow. And so, Lord, we are grateful that when we find ourselves doing that, we also can cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bears your name, the name that's above every name, and know that as we are in him, we've received mercy and love and forgiveness. And in that, we are changed. Father, thank you for making us your people and your servants. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we stand and respond in song.